following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Commercial real estate challenges? For 160 years, companies around the world have trusted Savills for expert guidance and perfect workspace solutions. See what Savills can do for you at Savills.us. The following program is a Forbes and Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Denise Ristari, and this is Mentoring Moments, a podcast where smart, witty, and bold women are sharing their triumphs and their skids. We aren't just talking, we're taking action, and we're inviting you to join us every Wednesday in my New York City apartment, where we are brought to you by LifeLock. Equifax recently announced a breach of 143 million identities, and you need to take steps to get protection. Be among the millions who trust their identity theft protection to LifeLock. Go to LifeLock.com, use promo code Forbes for 10% off. And a couple of months ago, I got an email from my dear friend, Libby Moore, who has joined me on the show, and many of you have heard her. Libby has an amazing career including she was Oprah's chief of staff for 11 years. So the email, the subject line is an introduction. And the email goes like this. Denise, meet my friend, the extraordinary motorcycle riding Wonder Woman, Zelda LaGrange. As you know, she was Nelson Mandela's right-hand woman up until his death. And then I flashed back to the many photos I have seen of Zelda over those 19 years that she was Nelson Mandela's personal assistant and confidant and even referred to as his honorary granddaughter. And there's a photo that I just love. It's of Zelda, a white Afrikaner, hand in hand with the first democratically elected black president of South Africa. It's one of those photos where you see so many different emotions and connections And then another one that was another flashback was of Zelda holding hands with Bono as they were going to Nelson Mandela's funeral. And then I bought her book and love, love, love it. It's called Good Morning, Mr. Mandela. And we're going to get into the title and why that's the title of the book. And for now, I just want to say, Zelda, welcome from across the ocean. You're in South Africa. We're not across the table. You're in South Africa. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the honor of inviting me and allowing me to be on your show, Denise. I've also heard a lot of great things from my friend Libby. So thanks for having me. And And that in itself is one of those mentoring moments, right, that it's all about us women connecting us to other women and men that we just know that together we'll make a bigger impact in life. So I think that's one of those big overarching mentoring moments. And we just have to keep saying, you need to meet my friend. You need to meet my friend. As I've been telling everyone for the past few days that, you know, I I can't wait. I'm going to be doing the podcast with Zelda. And everyone was like, oh, my God, I can't wait to hear her stories. I can't wait to hear her stories. And I'm like, me me either. So we're going to kick right into your mentoring moment today. So tell us that story, that aha moment, one of the many, I'm sure, 19 years plus, you had more of a life than just those 19 years with Nelson Mandela, but your mentoring moment story. Well, Denise, it was in 1998. Um, I joined President Mandela's um, office shortly after he became president in 1994. Um, I came from a government environment, but not from the presidency. Uh, I worked in his office a few years, and in 1998, um, the South African Football, or we know it as Rugby Association, challenged President Mandela to court after President Mandela established a commission of inquiry into um, the body's affairs. Uh, President Mandela expe- or suspected nepotism in this private body, and um, the president of the rugby board uh, felt that the president of the country had no reason to interfere in the business of a private sports body. So they ended up going to court. Uh, as we walked into court on that first day, Mr. Mandela walked right up to the opposition lawyers, to the South African Rugby Union lawyers. And I was like a chihuahua at the back. I wanted to stop him and interfere and say, don't greet them. They've got the audacity to challenge the president's authority. Um, You shouldn't give attention to them. And I was quite upset, but I didn't make a scene. And at tea time, I asked President Mandela whether he realized that he met the opposition lawyers first. 
And he told me two of the most important things I ever heard him say. And these two things, um, really, I, I live by every single day. And what he first said was, you never allow the enemy to determine the grounds for battle. And the second thing, the way you approach a person will determine how that person treats you. And, you know, that comes down or that pulls down to how we live our lives and in whatever circumstances we found ourselves. I saw him that day the authentic, being an authentic leader by just living these simple mottos that he that he believed in. He really um, uh, he really neutralized that courtroom and he wanted to show the opposition that this is not a, a personal battle. This is a matter before the law and we'll deal with it in accordance. Um, and, you know, throughout his life, I've seen how uh, humanity always triumphed over ideology. And that was the one instance. And if I think back of the 19 years, that is really the most important lesson about respect that I've learned from him. And that is definitely, that stands out as my mentoring moment. So I love the don't ever allow your enemy to determine the grounds for battle. Let's That's talk right. about that for a second, because how have you seen that play out either in your life and his life and other people's lives? How have you seen that play out? Well, obviously, if you approach um, a person, if you allow the enemy, um, if you allow your opponent um, to to um, set the ground as in hostility, that is how how um, the argument or the uh, the conversation will play out in hostility. And I've seen, you know, if it's it's all about respect. So if I am even in a hostile situation, if I reach out to to, to the person who approaches me, um, just being the opposite of what the person expects me, and I determine the grounds for battle, and I determine that this, you know, this can be resolved through talking peacefully rather than fighting and 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 being hostile. I've found in my life that it it means a great deal in resolving very very difficult issues. And is that hard to get yourself to that place of being able to do that? Definitely. It takes a lot of self-respect more than anything else. Um, you know, to to not lower yourself, but to 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 to, as we all know, the cliche, um, you know, to uh, go beyond what what a person would expect you to be. We have reason to be angry sometimes, but um, to to uh, react in a way that the that the opposition do not expect. Uh, you neutralize the the, the uh, territory and you make it a peaceful conversation immediately. It is very difficult, but it takes brain training, really. You know, it's so interesting, Zelda, that you tell that story because one of my first bosses, or early in my career, I was in my late twenties. I was upset with someone, and I was, you know, doing rare, 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 and I, you know, I, and he said to me, you know, Denise. Everything you're saying is you're lowering yourself to where mm. she is. Mm. And you're much better than that. You need to rise above her. He said, don't you want to rise above her? And there was a moment where I was like, no, I don't want to rise above her. <laughs> you know, I, I, want no. to, like, get, yeah. I want to get down. But in all seriousness, it was, that was a moment for me that was a real turning point of saying, no, I really don't want to get down to that level. I want to rise above it because it's not going to do either of us or anyone any good if we're both playing down here. Exactly. Um, and, you know, I've, I've tried it in my life um, because we are we're in South Africa. We've got a ter terrible problem with um, ill-disciplined taxi drivers, um, I'm sure, in New York. We have them in New York as have, well, yes. You have, I like, you I like that there, term, yes. though, ill-disciplined. That's a good one. I'm going to use yes. that one. So, um, you know, and, and people get very angry because the taxi drivers do not uh, adhere to the, the, the rules of the law and the, ro the road signs and so on. So the first thing you want to do is to react. But I've seen, you know, if you just have a little bit of patience and you do the opposite of what that person does and the person swings in in front of you and you actually smile and greet him, you actually feel better about yourself. Um, walking away from that situation um, because it could very easily, we've got a very, very volatile uh, environment in South Africa at the moment. So everything and anything can turn into a, 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 um, a racial incidence. 
So um, one has to be very, very careful and check yourself. And is it really worth it to get angry um, at a taxi driver that swings out in front of you? Is it really, is it worth it? Um, and, and, and um, you know, do I make the world a better place by getting angry and, and shouting and screaming and swearing? No, I don't. I've just worked myself up and I, and I get angry and it's not good for your health. And it's really a waste of energy and time. And one of the things I've learned and as I've gotten older is it just really isn't worth it. It's really picking your battles in life, right? Because if you spend all this energy on the things, number one, you can't control. You know, being angry is not going to make it better. And you spend all this energy and time and thinking about it. It's just like, it's just not worth it. It's figure out the best route to get to where you want to go and get there and spend that time on things that are really important that you do have some control or at least influence over that you can make a positive change. Yes, absolutely. Before we continue the conversation with Zelda LaGrange, let's talk about being the one and only you. So you've probably heard about the Equifax breach and how it may have impacted approximately 143 million people. But do you realize that these hackers made off with the information that identity thieves need to impersonate you, like your name, your social security number, your birth date, and your address? And this information can be used to open credit cards, loans, even apply for a mortgage in your name. So now is the time to get protection so that there is only one of you and sign up for LifeLock today. They use proprietary technology to detect a wide range of identity thefts, and they will alert you if your information is being used. If there is a problem, a U.S.-based identity restoration specialist will work to fix it. You know, no one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but LifeLock can help you see more than if you're just monitoring your credit. Go to LifeLock.com or call 1-800-LIFELOCK. Use promo code Forbes, that's Forbes, for 10% off your LifeLock membership. Visit LifeLock.com and save 10% now. It's Jack Vanek from The Lady Gang. And if you haven't heard of our podcast, you are missing out. And this month, we are doing this series called Lady Gang Your Life, where we're having experts from every field come on, and they're giving their expert opinion on everything from social media to skin to hormone health. I think you guys are going to love it. So grab a mimosa and come hang out with us every Tuesday on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and Apple Podcasts. This is Mentoring Moments with Denise Rostari. I want to go back to how you met Nelson Mandela. How did you get a job in his office? Well, it was, um, I was actually employed by his private secretary um, in 1994, as I said earlier. So um, I ended up having a very junior uh, position in President Mandela's office. And then two years after uh, I started the job, I was promoted to become one of his private secretaries. Um, But the first meeting is really one of the highlights of my life. And I also describe it in my book as uh, the turning point in pointing my life and the start of of a a metamorphosis um, of my whole being. Uh, You must remember um, and and just for the listeners to bring them into the picture. um, I'm a I'm a white person, a white Afrikaner, as you said earlier. And we were the people, my people imprisoned Nelson Mandela for 27 years. Uh, we were the enemy. We were the people who supported the apartheid regime. And I grew up in a very conservative house, um, non-political, no political links whatsoever. But we gladly um, accepted and supported the apartheid regime because our existence was not challenged in any way. Uh, so when I walked into his office in 1994, I had hardly had an idea who he was. At least I knew he was the president of the country. But I, I didn't know his principles, his, his ideals, or that of the ANC, um, for that matter. So the first two weeks into my job, I was walking into his private secretary's office to deliver something, and uh, a crowd of people came walking out of her office. Immediately, I noticed, uh, you know, the stereotype bodyguards. Uh, so lots of men in dark suits, uh, wearing sunglasses indoors, um, talking to their watches and wearing hearing aids. And I thought to myself, well, there's obviously I I was afraid because you realize, first of all, that, you know, these people are armed. And now with my very, very conservative thinking at that stage still, 
um, I was approaching them, so I was afraid of, of this, this um, mass of people in front of me. And then everything started in uh, rolling in slow motion, really. Uh, Mr. Mandela emerged, uh, the president emerged, and there I stood in front of him. And the first thing I noticed was this exceptional kindness in his eyes and really a smile um, that that was in that 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 could light up an entire room and an infectious kind of smile. And when I when I came to terms with what I'm seeing, I, I never expected to meet the president because I'm the most junior person in his office. We were only five personnel in his private office, but I'm now the most junior one. But still, I never expected to have to meet him. And there he stood, and he extended his hand to me. And I thought to myself, but I'm, I'm your enemy. I was your enemy. My people imprisoned you, but you want to shake hands with me. And immediately I thought, well, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to shake hands with the president? I don't know if it's proper. And um, I reciprocated and I took his hand and he held my hand into a very, very firm grip throughout the conversation. And, you know, immediately I went into a lot of shock um, because he was still smiling and he was conversing with me. But strangely, I couldn't understand anything he was saying. So I had to um, to compose myself a bit and um, ask him to repeat himself. So I said, excuse me, Mr. President. And when he repeated himself, I realized he was speaking to me in my home language, Afrikaans, the language of the oppressor. And I felt like a complete fool not understanding my own language. And it's not that his Afrikaans was not good. It is that the last thing my brain was wired to expect was that this man that we imprisoned would speak to me in my language. And I heard him that's say That's a wow moment. Years, no, that's absolutely wow. And that's also why I, why I chose the title of my book, Good Morning, Mr. Mandela, because it was that moment that changed my life. Um. He held onto my hand, he conversed, and over the years I heard him say, of course, that when you speak to a man, you speak to his head, but when you speak to a man in his language, you speak to his heart. And that's exactly what he did that day. He destroyed my defenses immediately, and he opened me up to just having a conversation. Uh, I felt respected, which I thought at that stage I didn't deserve, because this man was so kind and completely the opposite of what I expected him to be. He was kind, he was generous with his compliments, with his words, inquiring about my family, about my upbringing. And, you know, I, he was still holding on my hand. And, and subsequently, I became, I, I became just too emotional and I started to cry. And he just put his other hand on my shoulder to console me. And he said, no, 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 relax, you're overreacting. And so trust me, when a president uh, tells you you're overreacting, you compose yourself. <laughs> So that was really a wow moment. And that was really, as I say, the moment that changed my entire life. Um, I walked away from that meeting that day wanting to know what happened in my own country. I was oblivious to the, the, the liberation struggle and what it entailed. And um, I needed to find out, I needed to brush up on my own country's history and where did I fit in and what did I allow? So it was a very long process and I had to go through a lot of questioning of my parents, my upbringing, my religion, because in South Africa, religion was used as a tool to support apartheid. So we went to church, Dutch Reformed Church, twice on Sundays. Um, and in church, we were told that apartheid is approved of by God. So how do you reverse that? Because your entire being is, is, is based on your religion and your Calvinism with which you, you are brought up. How do you reverse that? It doesn't happen overnight. So it was a very difficult process for me to start off, um, you know, just thinking about these things. And I am just very blessed that I had people like Mr. Mandela around me that could take me through this journey and that allowed me also um, the journey and allowed me or gave me permission to learn. And so Zelda, I, I just love this story. What do you think it is about you that, you were picked from that bottom position, but how did you become his personal assistant, his confidant, his honorary granddaughter? How did that happen? It was really um, the first thing he noticed in me when I was going through this whole process now of change, what I thought I could do in return for what my people had done was just to be extremely loyal and committed to the job, dedicated, 200% dedicated to the job. 
So I, for instance, didn't go to a movie theater for over 10 years because I was too afraid that the president may look for me and I cannot take the call while I'm in a movie theater. So I would just avoid those things. So I was always um, on call. I was always available. I was always the first to answer the phone and to to drop everything um, and, and, and to serve him immediately. And he needed that for the job. He needed that kind of commitment. And that was my, why, my way of showing, um, I'm sorry for what we have done, but uh, I can really help you and support you in what you want to achieve. And do you, did you ever feel that that was a sacrifice, not going to the movies and not doing those things? I, I guess when you're no. so close to Nelson Mandela, that kind of, there's an, that kind of overtakes that thought. Yes, you know, um, I, ha- I had to. There was a time that I felt a bit sorry for myself because ex- especially after his retirement, I was the only person that remained um, in his services uh, and we our entire infrastructure collapsed overnight. So it's not like um, I know now the, the um, instance with, with President Clinton, for instance, where he has an, an office supported by the government and, and staff and so on. But uh, I was the only person working for him. So I was, I was becoming very sorry for myself and we worked ex- extremely hard. Uh, we were uh, the pressure was just relentless because you can imagine he's retired, but the entire world still wants him, and um, it was it was really a very hard time in my life. Um, but then I I thought to myself, this man sat in prison for 27 years. If there's anyone that had reason for regrets or for anger, it's him, and there's nothing. How can I talk of sacrifice? Um, how do I weigh that against what he has gone through for me to be in this country and to live a happy life today in this country? So you just can't you can't compare the two. I totally get that. And one of my one of the stories that I've heard you tell that I just love is the story about when when Nelson Mandela got together with Queen Elizabeth. Oh yes. Will you share? I don't want so, to tell your story. Will you tell the story? Because it's I just love yes, this story. Sure. Um, yes, it was. It's one of the most beautiful mo- moments. Um, I think what people, you know, people wanted to um, make a saint out of Mr. Mandela, but he was actually a very wicked. Um, he had a very wicked sense of humor. And on this particular day, we were in England, and we were always when we were in London, we would pay courtesy to the Queen, to Her Majesty, and to the Prime Minister, whoever it was at the time. And um, on this particular day. Um, we arrived at Buckingham Palace and of course there's a red carpet rolled out for Mr. Mandela and it's very stately and very formal and Mr. Mandela walks up to the Queen and about five meters as we approached the Queen he looked up and he said Elizabeth you've lost weight (laughs) and the Queen just burst out laughing because I don't think anyone has ever uh, commented (laughs) about the Queen's weight and um, you know she really she really enjoyed it as well and and, and a few days later um, Mrs. Michelle, Mrs. Grassa Michelle, Mr. Mandela's wife, um, she actually reprimanded him a bit and she said um, but Madiba, uh, we called him Madiba, it's his clan name in South Africa so we said we call him Madiba and, and she said Madiba you can't call him uh, you can't call the Queen Elizabeth and he said why not she calls me Nelson. <laughs> I just so. love that. <laughs> So um, that is the yeah that was that was a, a really a highlight for all of us. We laughed for months on end about that. You know, and one of the things I love about that story is, and I think so often, especially for a lot of women, every word we say, we go in so prepared and so overthinking. And did we do that right? Did we not do that right? And I think that story just brings it down to someone as powerful as Mr. Mandela to be able to. You know, call her Elizabeth and to be like, but why not? It's, you know, I think we sometimes overthink things and to just be that natural. I just love that story. And it reminds me whenever I'm in that, whenever I get my head in that space of, I have to do this, Mm -hmm. I have to do that. It's like, really? Do I have to? Yes. Yes, yeah. Who says you have to? Who decided you have to? Right. No, and 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 that was the one thing about um, Mr. Mandela as well that he made people feel extremely comfortable, and uh, people expected to be him to be very, uh, uh, very formal and uh, protocol-wise, observing protocol and so on. And he was respectful of protocol. Don't get me wrong, but. Uh, he could he could diffuse a situation just with that smile of his and with just one sentence, light up the room with his sense of humor. 
And I, I can't even imagine all the many things you've learned, you learned in those years. Are there a few things that come to your top of your to the top of your head that you can share with our listeners, those great takeaways of, you know, these are the, some of the things I've learned, in, in addition to what we just talked about? Yes, Denise, it's definitely um, the overall theme of, uh, if I have to give it a theme of my experiences with him, is definitely about respect. It's about um, what I said earlier. It's about choosing humanity over ideology. And I know in the U.S. and across the world, we are all struggling with this. Um, But Mr. Mandela had the ability to respect people to such an extent that they could relate to him. And it's not a superhuman trait. It is something that we can do every day. I think the difference is just... Um, in Nelson Mandela was that he tried harder than many of us are willing to on any given day. So it is definitely, uh, you know, the the most important thing I've learned from him is respect even um, for your enemy. Um, Also, he had a very disciplined way of of living. Um, He he was very, very well-disciplined and um, uh, meticulous about timekeeping. So punctuality was everything to him. And um, he would, on many occasions, if a person didn't arrive early enough or, or on time, he would cancel the meeting or, um, you know, he, would, he, he, would, he, he didn't want to make people wait for him. So, um, you know, he, he saw it as a sign of, of disrespect if you are late. Uh, for even for a meeting. Um, he said because he's a president doesn't mean that his time is more important than that of a security guard or a doctor or anyone else. So he wanted people to also behave in that way. Um, so that's definitely the two important things. And then lastly, I think um, ethics and uh, integrity and honesty was was also a pillar, a very, very strong pillar of, of his character and in throughout his life. Uh, he lived by these these values and morals every single day, and he exercised them so that we uh, and, and he made uh, himself as a leader believable of because of the way he exercised them. Okay, so Zelda, I have a question. Have you ever were you ever late? Once, <laughs> and, and that was, was it. Once, right? That was the last time, <laughs> and, and and that was the last time I was late. Yeah, it was in nineteen ninety five. Uh, I was supposed to join him in the presidential plane to fly from um, Pretoria, which is a a city in the northern uh, um, part of of South Africa, and I was supposed to fly to Cape Town with him. And it was a a winter's morning. We were supposed to take off at 6 o'clock, and usually the president would then arrive by by quarter to 6, and we officials had to arrive at half past 5. So I arrived at 25 to 6, and uh, my phone, my cell phone rang and it was um, the president's spokesman on the other side. And he, he urged me to, to, to hurry and to come to the plane because the president was already waiting for me. And as I entered the plane, uh, Mr. Mandela was already seated, strapped, strapped in and reading his newspapers. And I said, good morning, Mr. President. And he didn't say good morning even. He just told me that is the last time you were ever late. And I promise you, that is the last time I was ever late in my life. Okay, so what did you do? What was going through your head when he said that that is the last time you're late? Did you like want to go cry in the bathroom? Yes, yes, I wanted to. I promise you, because it's embarrassing. Um, because you know, he, he what he was saying is, if I can be on time, you can be on time. <laughs> so um, don't waste people's time. So you can't be five minutes late. <laughs> That's one of those showstoppers in life. It's like, okay, no, that would make you never. I, I love how you remember the date. You probably remember the exact day. I mean, that's one of those yeah. moments where you're no, taking back. No, it is because it's also so embarrassing, you know. And I, I, I didn't want to make a mistake. And I, you know, I wanted to be this a reliable person and punctual person uh, around him. And that day I really failed. But uh, subsequently, I also now drive people crazy in my life about timekeeping. So, um, you know, if they say, if you say to me, I have to be there at seven o'clock, I will be there at 10 to seven. And, uh, you know, it's, I just drive people crazy because now it's part of my character as well. That's a great part of your character to have, though, I have to say. Whenever I'm running late, it, it just changes everything, right? It changes the dynamics of the meeting, the, the person you're meeting with. It changes you know, because you start off apologizing, it's like, I'm so sorry, I'm late, right? And then you're, you're frazzled, you're hot, you're whatever it is, you know, your whole body just isn't present. So I really, um, yeah, I hate, I hate being late. I'm not, I am late sometimes, 
but I, I hate when I'm late. Like, because, and yeah. the biggest part is it's a waste of somebody else's time. I hate waiting for people, yeah. so I, I don't want to make them wait. With everything that's going on in the United States now, with the white supremacy and the racism, from where you're sitting, are there any thoughts you have? Any similarities you see? Differences? Yeah, I, I do think that um, not only in, in the United States, I also think worldwide we are moving to become more conservative or people are moving to become more conservative um, again. And we are repeating history and we know the outcome. So, um, you know, I think, I think um, you know, it's just uh, next year is the centenary celebrations uh, for Mr. Mandela. It's his, it would have been his 100th birthday. We are going to do everything in our power to revive the legacy of respect, um, what he stood for, for uh, uh, um, peaceful negotiations, and, and, and try and remind people that South Africa had this success story because of, of, of um, these great qualities and these morals and principles that this man stood for. And it is possible anywhere in the world um, if you are willing to sit around the table and, again, choose humanity over ideology. And I think the story you told about changing your whole belief system, you yourself personally, and because your religion dictates that you think or you behave a certain way. And that when you think about you're able, you were able to change your thoughts, your beliefs, Mm -hmm. that we all can do that. It's not easy. Right. And so, you know, sitting here in the United States is really difficult in these days. And not that this hasn't been going on here for years because it has. It's just so much more out there now. And it's really, really troubling um, what's going on. And Mm. so I hope for everyone, you know, listening to your story about we all can change and we all can rise above and we all can be better people Mm. no matter what has happened to us. Absolutely, Denise. Um, I must tell you that I voted um, no in our referendum. So I voted against the abolishment of apartheid. This was in 1988, I think, um, before Mr. Mandela was released. So that's how deeply seated my racism was. And you have to remember that if you if you keep quiet about something, and, and, and that was one regret I had in my life, I had to question myself, but why you were 18 years of age, why didn't you speak up? Why could you not see um, the, 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 the pleading people around you? How, how could you not see what was happening in your country? Why were you, you blind to it? Because I grew up in privilege. I lived in privilege. Um, I, I, it was none of my concern what happened to people outside the borders of my community. So, um, you know, you, we have to ask those questions. We have to ask um, not only we have to, we have to be less self-centered. It's not only about us. It's about the the survival of the human race, the survival of the planet. It's about all of that. We are no longer just individuals. We have to think about deep deeper things and and wider things. And um, it can start at an early age. Uh, we 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 should bring up the gen- next generation of children who ask the right questions at the right time and who also do not uh, allow politicians to distract us from our, our, our thinking or to dictate to us. Um, because that was in apartheid South Africa, that was the case. Uh, our, our, our radio, our television, our uh, media, newspapers, magazines, everything was dominated and we were indoctrinated by media. It was controlled by the apartheid regime. So, so you get fed this propaganda every single day and you then start believing it. And, you know, we, we, the, the United States just has to look at South Africa. Um, uh, we, we, we should have had a civil war in this country. Um, God knows what would have happened. You know, we, half the people in this country would have been, would have been killed probably. But um, we would have burnt the country down to the ground. Uh, but luckily we had the people with a vision that realized wait, we must try and resolve this by peaceful uh, negotiations, by talking around the table. Um, And, uh, you know, President Clinton once said a wonderful thing. um, We are connected as human beings and our similarities 
are more than our differences. We are only like 1% different um, and it's only skin color or your hair or whatever. Um, but 99% of your DNA is the same as the next human being. So why do we focus on the differences? Why not on the similarities? And I think that that provides a basis for any kind of also difficult negotiations that people are going through. Think of that person as a human being, as a person with struggles um, and don't forget your own. I'm not saying give that up, but but think about that person as well and, and, and how he views you in the world. Yes, I am so done with everyone thinking that there's not a different way, a better way, the way people are treating people. It's, it's mm. really heartbreaking what's going on here right now. And it's not just here, as you said, it's universal. It's just for here, it's different. You know, it's very different and very much in our faces. And it brings me back to, and I think it was Mr. Mandela who said this, so correct me if I'm wrong, if people must learn to hate, then they can learn to love. That's right. It was him, yes. Um, people are not born racist. They become racist. So if, they, if a person can learn to hate, he can be taught to love. Yes, and I and I I so believe that, and I want us all to find more love in our hearts, and that's why one of the reasons I'm so excited that you're here today because your stories, your stories about you, about Mr. Mandela, they're just all about finding that love in our hearts from both sides, and that brings me around to the segment that we do, the things that we're done with in life, because I really am done with us all living in our own little worlds and not reaching out and helping others, but. Um, so I'll take it to a little bit of a lighter note about something I'm done with, though, is mm. a bit lighter, but it's it's really deep for me. I'm done with being exhausted because people want me to dance by their rules. And some rules oh. in life make sense, right? I mean, it makes mm. sense, like mm. not to hurt people. I mean, all of those rules make perfect sense. But some rules yeah. are just there and they make absolutely no sense. It just goes into the, well, we do it that way because that's how we've always done it. And something happened about a month or two ago, and this is going to sound very superficial, but sometimes it's those moments in life for me that become very deep because mm. they do seem so superficial, but they really aren't. And I'll explain what happened. So I was yes. hosting a dinner for Forbes and the one of our guests was Dominique Crenn. And Dominique is from France. She lives here in the States. She was voted the number one female chef in the world. And she has the only five-star female-run Michelin restaurant in the United States. It's in San Francisco. And we get to the dinner, and it's a dinner of women, and everybody's all dressed up, and you know, we're all in our whatever our version of the four-inch stiletto heel for dinner is, right? That whole <laughs> but you pick your version of it, but you got the picture of everyone yeah. in their dresses and in their high heels and looking all mm. prim and proper. And that's so not me as an entrepreneur, but I do have those outfits because that's the way I'm supposed to look sometimes, right? Mm. So mm. I get to the dinner and I'm in one of those outfits, and Dominique walks in. And she has a camouflage jacket on and a pair of really cool jeans and a pair of really cool sneakers. And I say to her, I have that jacket. As a matter of fact, I also have the pants. I would never wear them together. So we'll get into fashion. It's like I would never wear my camouflage pants and my camouflage jacket at the same time. But I like the prints so much. It's by Nilly Loten that I bought two of them. I bought both of them. And so I, someone, yeah, I thought afterwards I should have run home and changed into the pants. And she and I could have been like one complete outfit. Because <laughs> we were on stage together. Anyway, oh. she's speaking the next day at the Forbes Women's Summit. And we're, she says to me, and we're talking about sneakers. And she's like, so what sneakers are you going to wear to the summit tomorrow? And I'm like, sneakers? I'm not wearing sneakers. I mean, I'm like, what? <laughs> and I wanted to say to her, you're Dominique Crenn. You can wear anything you want. But then so I thought to myself, wait, why don't I put myself in that category? Mm, that mm. I'm Denise and I can mm. wear anything I want. And part mm. of it's because I've set up that expectation, right? Of this is what people expect of me in a business setting. They mm. expect me to show up in the four inch heels version of whatever it is. But it was like, I need, so part of it is I have to change that. 
And, but part of that is because I want to follow their rules. They would be upset with me, but nobody's upset with Dominique. Everyone thinks she looks really mm. cool and comfortable. Right. Mm. So that night mm. I'm getting an Uber and she's walking home because she's got her flats on. And I'm like, I want to be walking home. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, as I said, it sounds superficial because it's about fashion, but that was a real no. turning point for me. And the next day mm. to the summit, I wore sneakers. Good, good on you. <laughs> so, so that was like one of those moments of saying, we have to start creating our own rules when the rules aren't important. Mm. You know, is anybody I not have... paying attention to Dominique because she's in a pair of sneakers? No. Exactly, exactly. It's who you are. It's not. It's not what you. What necessarily what you look like. What you believe in. It's. It's what you as a person represents. And you are absolutely right. We have to first realize our own value, then other people will, va- will, will realize our value. Yes. And it, we put our, and from, I'll speak for myself. I put myself into that. What's to be expected. And here's the even crazier part. You know, I used to head up sales at USA Today. I was there for 16 years and we had a quote unquote uniform. You know, you had to represent mm. the brand and this was, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And so you did wear Certainly, as women, as we were entering the workforce, right, or we were making management, we were in management roles in the workforce. So we we weren't allowed to wear pants for the longest time. And I think part of me is in that mode still. But when I left USA Today, one of the things I kept saying was, I want to be an entrepreneur because I want to be me. I want to dress the way I want to dress. Yeah, they said it's superficial, but it's not because it's really a mind thing. And then I would fall back into it. So Dominique has, you know, being with Dominique, I've stayed true to it. Now it's been a couple of months that whenever I'm doing something, I do it the way I want. Now, if that means I want to wear four inch heels, that's fine, but it's my decision. Yes, it's not yes. because of what I'm supposed to do. So yeah. now I'm sure there are tons of things you're done with. I'm actually, I'm actually done with having to feel guilty or feel that I have to explain why I say no to people. Um, I know there's, you know, Oprah talks a lot about about saying no and having to learn to say no. But I've realized that no is actually a full sentence. So I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a people's pleaser. So I'll do anything to keep people happy. And then I find myself in this situation where I'm like a headless chicken running around and I can't keep up with the pressure. But it's to my own doing. And other people don't necessarily see what happens the rest of the time during the day with me. Um, So they put these pressures on me thinking that it's just something small. And I feel guilty saying no or having to explain to them why I don't want to do something. So I'd rather do it because it's easier. And I've just realized in the last couple of weeks, I have to just say no and I don't have to explain. And people will accept that. Um, because I'm Zelda, you know, if I just say no, they'll probably have more respect for me because I say no, rather than running around and not trying and trying to please everyone. So that is what I'm done with is um, giving explanations for why I say no. And, and I'm going to add to that something else I'm done because I am so done with thinking that I have to say yes to everything. And when I say mm-hmm. no, I feel very free. Does it feel freeing for you when you say no? First of all, it's freeing of time, right? It's like I have time to do what I really want to do. But it's bigger than that. I just feel free. And, you know, for every person um, that, 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 that crosses your path, the most valuable commodity for that person is their time. And why is my time not that important to me? So I've really learned in the last, uh, well, months, I've really learned to just say no and, and not feel obliged to have to give reason. I also can just make a choice, yes or no. Um, in it, and it's acceptable to other people and they do it every day. So why not me? Right. And you don't have to follow it with, I'm, or begin with, I'm sorry, but no, it's like, but, no, you but, know, I can't make it. I can't do it. I can't make it. And some things are harder because we, you know, we might want to do them, but we can't. But a couple of weeks ago, somebody invited me to host to be a host of a dinner. And I had said, I, I really didn't want to do it, but I wanted to do it for them. So it falls, it fell into that category where I should have just said no, but I had said, okay, I'll do it. And this is my fee. And they wrote back to me and they said, we're, and this is a company, this is a major company. We're so sorry, but our budget, and this is a sponsored dinner. A client is paying them to do this dinner and they want me to host it. 
we're so sorry, but our budget can't afford you. So, mm-hmm. and my, it's not, it wasn't my rate. It was that they weren't paying anything, right? That was, it wasn't that your rate's too high. Yes. So our budget doesn't. So I, th- I wrote back and I said, and I don't, you know, I didn't mean, I don't mean this to sound smart. I didn't say that, but I, I put that in a different way. But do you work for free? Mm, exactly. I mean, you're asking me to come and do something and work for free. So it was like, I'm really looking forward to the day when we, and especially women, stop asking women to work for free. Absolutely. And, you know, it's like kind of, but you don't expect to work for free. Somewhere in that budget, they're paying you. Some budget's paying you. So why would you expect me to do it, right? Sure. And why not then get another sponsor to sponsor your fee? But why do they expect you? Because you are you, because you are Denise, you have to do something for free. So it's it's also about our own value. Né? It's just realizing, again, our own value and then just saying, well, sorry, it's not working out. Maybe next time. <laughs> right. And I think part of it is because in the past, as I was building the brand, I may have said that because there are times when you do do things for free because you have a different motive, right? And there's a different ROI on that. It's like, okay, I'm going to be in front of 2,000 people. You want me to speak? I'll do that. <laughs> I'll do that, right? It gets my brand out there. So anybody listening, yeah. if you want me to come speak and I can then, people can know about the podcast, count me in. I will do that if you have 2,000 people. Mm. But when you're asking me to host, that's a job. Yes. You know, I'm doing yes. the job. I'm doing a job for your company. So it was like one of those is like, no. The, and so I thought at, at first I should have just said no to begin with because that's what I was really feeling. It's like, I really don't want to do this. So it goes back to you. When we feel it, just say it. And because something else is out there. It's better yes. that if we take this, we're not going to have the time Absolutely. To do you are so right. You are so right. Um, I've also, you know, you always do things also for charity. And I'm quite involved in quite a, 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 a few charitable organizations. And um, I had to start telling people, listen, I do my fair share. I can't do, I can't spend my entire life on charity. I also have to pay the bills. So I can't just keep on doing charity. It's not a reflection um, on the credibility of your organization, I just can't do everything. And it is, as you say, you feel lighter because you, you, you know, people, people understand because you, you, you also have boundaries. Yes. And it just makes your life better. And it, it allows you to spend the time on the things that are most important. I just read this book called present over perfect. Mm-hmm. And it's all about living in the present and realizing what's important to you. And it's it's one of those books where, you know, I'll say I'm drinking 50% of the Kool-Aid, maybe 40%, but that 40% was really meaningful to me about what's really important to you. And how often do we hear people say, you know, my family's most important to me, but I don't spend any time with them. Mm-hmm. It's that part we need to we need to change the, but I don't spend any time with them. If they're really important to you, then quit spending time with the people who aren't important to you. Exactly. I also found that, that you know you you are in control of your own life and your own destiny, and you you cut out the time as you want to spend it. But um, you you need to have time just to think about things. And one of the things that Mr. Mandela always said is, uh, well, in the later years when we were so crazy busy, he used to say to me, "Oh, you know, I miss prison," and then I would be disgusted. And I said, "You can't say that. That's <laughs> terrible to think that you say you miss prison." Um, and he says, no, 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 no. I, I mean, I, I, I miss having time to think. And, you know, over the years, I've also matured quite a bit and realized that I need time to think. I need to think about a response for something. I need to think about what's going on in the United States. I need to think what's going on in South Africa. I need to think. And we don't allow ourselves that time. Um, so, so yeah, I have sacred times now during the day, with which I... I, I really just take that time for myself because it also helps you focus. Yeah, and that's part of the book, um, Present Over Perfect. She talks about when we keep ourselves so busy, we never allow ourselves to really think about what makes us happy. We're just in busy mode, right? And sometimes we do it on purpose. Correct. To be able to say, you know, if I'm so busy, I can't, I just can't think about what I really want in life. So I'll just stay busy. And it's not even a conscious thing. But she was talking about like on the weekends, her husband and her kids would be on the sofa or they'd be playing. And she would, she wasn't working, but she was doing the laundry. She was doing, she was always busy doing stuff while there, while they were having fun and nobody was making her do the laundry. That was her choice. 
and that she was kind of hiding under that. So now I want to get into takeaways because our listeners have sent in some questions that they want to know. And one of them is, what's next for you? Well, Denise, I'm on the speaking circuit, um, so I try and keep the legacy also alive by doing um, inspirational speaking, not so much motivational really, but inspirational speaking and telling people about my life experiences and and, and the change I've been through. And, um, you know, I think the world is ready to to, to hear these stories and to be reminded of a person um, like Nelson Mandela and the miracle South Africa had uh, because of his leadership. So that's what I'm busy with. Um, yeah, my book is still is still in print, so I'm, I'm um, still doing marketing across the world. I travel quite a bit uh, across the world, continuing to promote the book as well. Um, I don't know what's next really after that. Um, I think there is a shelf life um, you know, to the story as well. Uh, who knows whether that's in five or ten years. But hopefully I'll, I'll be able to also give more time um, towards the charities that I'm involved in. Next year is the centenary year um, of Mr. Mandela's birthday, as I said. So next year is a big year for us. And uh, most of my time will probably be spent uh, around advocating for his legacy and for his charitable organizations. And tell me about this motorcycle. As you were talking about traveling around, I was like, yes. I thought about that. I was like, about transportation. I was like, wait a minute, the motorcycle. <laughs> so do you go everywhere on you know, a motorcycle? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I had a, I had a, I say I had because I sold it recently simply because I don't have time to be on the motorcycle now. But I had a, a BMW 1200GS, so it's quite a big, it was a big boy. Um, I liked a bit of um, off-road riding, so we have beautiful landscapes in South Africa to discover. And I also found, actually, my my love for the motorbike riding came from my my urge or uh, the necessity to be by myself and to be alone and to have that time, as I said earlier, to think. So I realized that when I'm on the motorbike, no one could call me and no one could get hold of me. And I was in that helmet all by myself. So I really enjoyed it. And um, I also started an initiative around Mandela Day, Mr. Mandela's birthday, which is internationally recognized by the United Nations. So it's a a world of a day of service worldwide. Um, I started this initiative called Bikers for Mandela Day. So what we would do is get a group of friends together, um, you know, get a corporate sponsor to pay for the ride or whatever and go into the rural communities um, of which we have quite a bit in South Africa and go to the most rural communities with our motorcycles and then go and do service, do go and do work. So we would fix a school or build a library or build a house for someone or paint a house or um, uh, start a vegetable garden, something sustainable, you know, that the people could help, that could help them s- survive. Um, so I've done that for, for seven years and next year we also hope to take that internationally and um uh, I will still continue to to live my passion through that. Oh, that's great. So you're going to get another motorcycle? I'll probably take one on loan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my mother is very concerned about that. She was very happy when I sold it. Um, she, she, always, you know, she always says to me, I'm constantly on my knees when you are on the motorcycle. Oh, so, I can appreciate um, that. <laughs> yeah, so she's very concerned. And, and yeah, our roads are not always safe. Um, I didn't do a lot of riding, but I did group riding from time to time. So uh, who knows, one day, maybe one day, I had to also simplify my life a bit and just consolidate things a bit. So um, so it's more manageable because I travel so much. It's, it's not easy when you're not at home a lot. So it was part of uh, trying to just consolidate things and make life a bit easier. Um, so I had to sell it and uh, yeah, who knows, maybe maybe there'll be another one. <laughs> Right. And what you have to do, though, is have these make believe like whatever that period of time is when you were alone on the motorcycle, when you were able to think, just make that make believe in your own life that it's if it's okay to not be on the phone because you're on your motorcycle, pretend that you're on your motorcycle, so to speak, and block yourself out. Right. Because I sometimes think think that like if I'm on a plane, people can't reach me. So why can't I just block out a couple of hours? Well, I don't think it's going to be long. Then people will be able to reach you on the phone. They can already right. on some 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 international flights. You. I agree, but you never. I never so, tell people that. 
Yates. No, I, mean, I always the white say, guy. I never tell people that, <laughs> but I'm on a plane where you can reach me. It's like, I'm on a plane and the conversation It's like, don't call me. No, I, th- I think there's just uh, way too much anxiety for us to deal with in everyday life. It's, there's no reason why a cell phone should attribute to that, you know? So, so um, it's, yeah, that's a whole it's other just, podcast. Yeah. Yeah, totally. that is like a whole podcast. So I could go on with you forever, Zelda. Before we close out, though, I have one last question that is from a listener as well as myself. What would you tell your 20 or 30 something self now with all the learnings you've had? The, 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 the faster you grow up um, and put your sensitivities aside and your emotions aside, the easier life will become. Um, I really, I was very sensitive. Yeah, I was very sensitive in the beginning, and because I'm um, a white person, and I worked for the first democratically um, elected black president in South Africa, and I mean this this absolute statesman in the year on Nelson Mandela, there was a lot of criticism towards me, a lot of undermining, um, and it's only later years that that um, actually Mrs. Michelle, Mr. Mandela's wife, brought me to understand that. He was the one that chose me and he was the one that picked me. I didn't need to defend um, his decision. And I was spending a lot of time and energy trying to defend myself and trying to defend my position and trying to justify myself. And if I grew up a little earlier, you know, if I wasn't so sensitive and immature and, and allow these things to get to me, life would have been much easier for me. I love, I love, love, love that because... I think we can all relate to that, right? I mean, that is such a great learning for everyone. And be- once again, before we go, tell us where we can find you, where we can find your book so people can follow you. Thanks, Denise. Yes, um, my website is uh, www.zeldalagrange.com. On Instagram, I'm zeldalagrangesa. On Twitter, I'm Zelda Lagrange SA, and on Facebook, that's just Zelda Lagrange. And um, yeah, the book, um, I'm sure you can still order it in the book in good bookstores, Barnes and Nobles, and so on in the United States. Um, otherwise, Amazon definitely has it as well. Right. And it is a wonderful book. So I recommend everyone read it. And I'll put all of this in our show notes as well on Forbes.com. So, Zelda, thank you. Thanks, Libby. Huge thanks to Libby for introducing us. And when you're in New York, you have to come see us. And my husband wants to come to South Africa, so maybe. Who knows? Please stay in touch, um, Denise. Yeah, anytime our, our, our country is open for business, we need tourism. So please <laughs> Ours come is and, too. Please, <laughs> please, true. please come and visit, and I'll definitely connect with you in, in New York. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to you. What a wonderful talk, and, and uh, what, a, what a great person you are. So thank you very much for sharing your time with me. And thank you. And the great person goes right back at you. So sending you kisses across the oceans and continents and have a wonderful, wonderful day. Same to you. Thanks, Denise. If you've been taking notes through this podcast and thinking, I want to remember that quote that Nelson Mandela told Zelda, I'm going to help you out here. Here's some that are stuck in my mind. One is President Mandela told Zelda, You never allow the enemy to determine the grounds for battle. Another one was, the way you approach a person will determine how that person treats you. And this one just really hits home for me. When you speak to a man in your language, you speak to his head. But when you speak to a man in his language, you speak to his heart. And something that we all need for today to remember, if people can learn to hate they can be taught to love. And take out that time to think, because as President Mandela said, he misses prison. And what he meant by that was he missed the time to think. So thanks for joining us today. And to get Mentoring Moments, the moment it's live every Wednesday, remember to download new episodes on the Podcast One app or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or podcastone.com. And make sure to rate, review, and share. And check out my show notes on Forbes.com and talk to me. You know where to find me on Twitter at Denise Ristari. And until next week, keep sharing your stories because your stories matter. Download new episodes of Mentoring Moments every Wednesday at PodcastOne.com, Forbes.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. 
I'm Christina Wallace. And I'm Kate Scott Campbell. And we're the hosts of The Limit Does Not Exist, a podcast for human Venn diagrams. That's right. We talk to people with intersecting interests in the arts, STEM, entrepreneurship, and so much more. The easiest way to explain science to non-scientists is to use art. I worry that we lose a lot of creative engineers because our engineering curriculum is not creative. Education should be about empowering people to become better thinkers, good problem solvers, creative inventors, and ethical caring citizens. Download new episodes of The Limit Does Not Exist every Monday on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. The right workspace is more than just square footage. It's an incubator of achievement, a magnet for talent. Your workforce unleashed. For 160 years, Savills has been bringing real intelligence to global real estate, ensuring not just any space, but the perfect workspace. Because the most important dimension of a building is the human one. Savills. See what Savills can do for you at Savills.us. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower that does not appear to be following, following the rule of law, is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley. 